Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you, and you can turn to page 902. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have, a prophetic, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning. Um, it's good to be here, share the word of God with you. And unfortunately, no one got married this past week, so our streak has ended of introducing newly married couples. But we do come to a very familiar passage, and I'm very excited to go through this passage with you all. And so as we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we ask you, imploring you, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, to mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit in the true understanding of your word, and to give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you, and to serve and honor you as we should, so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living, and edify our neighbor by our good example rendering to God the love and the obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents, since it has pleased you to graciously receive us among the number of your servants and children. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. For the past, past few months, we've been going over the first letter to the Corinthians, and it's been, to say the least, a humbling experience. Uh, the abuses rampant in the church in Corinth are not things so far removed from us. In fact, have we not many times also been guilty of breaking the unity for trifling matters, guilty of not adhering to biblical doctrine, maybe even guilty of celebrating sin rather than condemning it? In the end, what was it that the Corinthians were after? In chapter 12, we saw the scramble for the quote, unquote, higher gifts. These are the gifts that stood out. They were eye-catching. They were ostentatious. And what ended up happening was that we saw a meretricious style of dress that they started to put on, all show and no-go. They were focused on these so-called higher gifts, and especially glossa, languages, or how now we know conventionally as tongue. We ended chapter 12 of Paul saying that even though they would seek these higher gifts, now Paul will show us a more excellent way. 
You know, it has been said of chapter 13 that it is the deepest, purest, and strongest aspect of spiritual life that Paul ever wrote. Some even calling it Paul's hymn of love. Now imagine a group of people that gave you so much grief. Everything, almost everything they did was wrong. They abused doctrine. They abused each other. They abused the gifts. And now after what seems to be a reprimand, reasoning, and correction, after reprimand, reasoning, and correction, we saw this for the last 12 chapters, there is this glorious and magnificent chapter on love. And some have imagined Paul's scribe, when Paul was dictating, because that's how they, they wrote letters, there would, be a, there would be a scribe that would write down what you'd be dictating. And some have imagined Paul's scribe, when he got to chapter 13, stop and look up at Paul to see if he was okay. Because this is such a drastic change of tone. And I think that's good. I think that's good if maybe you wondered what made the Apostle Paul stop and start writing about this. I think you should, because this chapter is absolutely critical if you are engaged in the ministry if you are engaged in the body of Christ. If you sat under my preaching for a while now, you know of the burger mechanism that I mention often that the teachers in the ancient world used. Here is the burger of burgers. In chapter 12, we are brought into the context, we are taught that God has richly endowed and graciously given the members of the church every single one of them spiritual gifts we all received spiritual gifts from the holy spirit there is no exception to this we've all been baptized into the church by the holy spirit and have been given these abilities now to serve and benefit the body that's the context of chapter 12 and chapter 14 is how to exercise those gifts and there are really specific instructions those are the two buns. And so the burger patty part is this chapter. It's chapter 13. But people have always wondered what their gifts are. And to a certain degree, I don't blame them. But we see that Paul and even Peter could never exhaustively go through every single spiritual gift, either because there are too many to count or because that's not the what that is of concern. And I think this is where we also have to be careful too. By asking, what is my spiritual gift? We have to make sure we are not adopting the trap that the Corinthians fell into where they are really seeking, by asking what, they are really seeking these higher and more ostentatious gifts. Because if you have been keeping up with us, the Corinthians, in the Corinthian church, whether they had gifts or not, or what they had, was not the concern. In fact, in the very beginning of this letter, in verse 7 of chapter 1, Paul says that they are not lacking in any gift. 
No one in the church was going around saying, Oh man, I wish I had a gift too. If anything, there was an abundance of gifts that led to the abuse of these gifts. In verse 31 of the previous chapter, I went over how the last sentence could either be an indicative statement or an imperative statement. It was either stating a fact or a command. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. That's how it's translated in your ESV Bibles. And it would seem as though if you're putting that sentence in context, then if you see it as an imperative, then Paul was being sarcastic because even that statement is sandwiched or burgered by a crescendo of rhetorical statements and questions followed by, I will show you a still better way. And it makes sense because the word zelu means to covet. But as an indicative statement, it would sound more like, but you desire, but you earnestly desire, but you covet the higher gifts, stating it as a matter of fact. This is what you are doing. You are coveting these so-called higher gifts, but I am going to show you a better way. And I think that's the real question that we should all be asking. It's not a question of what at all. It's really a question of how. And that's what this passage is about. If you don't get the how, it doesn't matter what the what is. The Corinthians were not acting according to the Spirit, but they were acting according to the flesh. Not pneumaticos, but sarkanos. So what does it matter if you have the pneumaticon if you are still acting like a sarkanos? And by the time we got to chapter 12, people were speaking in tongues in a way that wasn't just going to the absurd. They were going into the demonic. You can't say that you're speaking in the Spirit and say Jesus is accursed. You see, this was in verse 3 of chapter 12. See, this is what happens when you pervert the gifts. You end up cursing Christ. And I think this is especially why when people were speaking in other languages, Paul commanded, Paul demanded that they interpret it. You can't say something in a different language and end up cursing God. This is why I find it troubling that people that claim to speak in tongue today seek no interpretation. Language is from somewhere, and it always means something. The Bible would never call gibberish or speaking gibberish, it would never call gibberish glossa because glossa means one of two things, language or tongue, like the physical tongue. But when you spoke in this manner of mania that the Greek pagans elevated, you would also be elevated amongst the people in the Corinthian church. This was bad. Paul needed to correct this, and he does it throughout these three chapters. When people today ask me about tongues, little to no one ever really mean a known language. What do they mean then? And I want to get into it somewhat here today, but again, it goes all the way to chapter 14, but a little bit this morning. First, I would like to address the why. 
Why were people getting into this? So much so that they elevated it even above prophecy and teaching. And here is where I see the world ideologies, when accepted by the church, pervert and corrupt the church. There are all these movements. Even our church members last year were tempted to march and protest in support of these movements. But when you strip down the core ideologies of these movements, it isn't about service. It isn't about laying down your life. It is about picking and taking up power. And by power, I mean the power to subject others. The dominating ideology right now that has permeated through our school, so every single one of you who has gone through school, this is what you have been inundated with. It's permeated our schools and government systems. It's this Marxist view that society is made up of two classes, the oppressors and the oppressed. You see, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, they were sure, they were sure, like 150 years ago, they were sure that there would be a violent uprising of the oppressed, ultimately bringing in utopia. That, that of course, has not happened. What we see in practice of this worldview, when you separate society into two classes, the oppressed versus the oppressor, there is an uprising, and we saw it. There is an uprising. It happened in Russia, happened in Italy, and happened in Germany, and so on. And by the way, uh, the phrase that we like to throw around to political opponents we don't like by calling them Nazi, the way, so Nazi is short for National Socialistic. It just, it means national socialist. And I find it ironic that people are calling, the socialists are calling other people Nazis. Anyway, there was no utopia. You see, when you can only see society as power structures between the oppressed and the oppressor, and you can only be on one side or the other, doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter what your character is, if you are in this identity group, then you are in this oppressed or oppressor group. When you see society only in that lens, why do you wonder that when one party gains power, and by the way, it's always, in history, it's always, always, always used with the language that we are the people's party. We are the people's party. That's how Hitler went into Austria. He's like, we are your party. He was voted in by a 98% plus like majority. We are the people's party. That the only thing that it can do, that when they get power, is to subject and oppress all those who will not side with them. You are not on my side, then I will oppress you. I will discriminate because you are a discriminator. I will be racist against you because you are racist. That's the only thing that they can do. And all they can really do then is really just flip this structure to become the oppressor. And I truly, truly believe that they are fine with that. They are fine with that because they are hypocrites. They are evil. They don't care about anyone or anything but their, themselves and lining their pockets. And I think 
This has always been the human ailment. In the end, when we are raging against order, think about it. If you're raging against natural order, who are you really raging against? And, it, and is it any wonder then that these so-called Marxist regimes were either atheists or given into the occult? You see, coveting power, coveting the position of the eyeball, that is a sinful disposition. It is not the way. In the church, the people in offices are not positions of lords or masters, but they are servants. And it is in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus who said, I come not to be served, but to serve. And that's where we take our understanding of leadership. A deacon and an elder wait tables. More specifically in Acts chapter 6, excuse me, we see both elders and deacons as waiters. Deacons serve tables, food. Elders serve the word and prayer. Both terms, to serve tables or serve food, to serve in the word and prayer, the word is deacon. That's the Greek word. And both terms were used in Acts 6. The world has and will always see power as subjecting someone under your will. It will rage and murder when you do not submit. But what is true power? What is true power, though? Isn't it to lay it down? Jesus says in John chapter 10, I have the authority or I have the power to lay it down, meaning his life. He has the authority to lay down his life. And a few chapters later, he tells his disciples that the world will know that they are his disciples if they love one another. This is why the how is way more important than the what. I believe when a mother needs to tend to her baby, a thought that she doesn't stay on is, I wonder what gifts I have to serve the baby. And I'm sure sometimes she may question her ability or effectiveness, but when the baby is hungry, she will feed it. When the baby is tired, she will rock it. When the baby is dirty, she will change the diaper. What compels and propels her to do these things, instead of being paralyzed by the question, do I have the ability to serve my baby, what compels her to do these things then? It's love. Love is the controlling reality of life. Love is the controlling reality of all spiritual ministry and gifts. See, the Corinthians had the gifts. They had the power, so to speak. But they were selfish. They were carnal, and they were without love. Power, they thought, was to be coveted. And they thought that when they get these higher gifts, that they would have these, this power. But this is not true. True power isn't subjecting others under your will. So it doesn't matter what quote-unquote gift you have. And it's important that I put the word gift in quotes. Because without love, it's all useless. 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You see, these three verses that were read, this is a preamble that shows us what Paul will talk about for the rest of the chapter. And it's about love. So whether you are an eyeball or even a more modest part of the body, the context in which you must serve is love. And the word for love here is distinct. In the English language, we like to use the word love for a lot of things, uh, like apple pie. I love apple pie. The same word we use for our spouses. I love my wife. And we use the same word for our kids. I love my kid. But they do not mean the same thing. If they do, you'll have problems. I do not love my wife the same way I love apple pie. And you don't treat your kids the same way you treat your spouse. If you do, you'll have problems. So the word for love here in the Greek is a familiar word. It's agape. This is a rich word that means more than just the sentimentality that we may mean when we say love. Agape doesn't mean physical or sexual attraction. That's eros. It doesn't mean friendship. That's phileo. Agape is sacrificial love. And I've heard it put this way. Eros takes, right? The physical or sexual love it takes. Phileo gives and takes. The friendship kind of love. It gives and takes. But agape just gives. So eros takes, phileo gives and takes, but agape just gives. And I like that. That's what agape is. It's a love that just gives. And let me reiterate. Agape never means sentimental or emotional love. It's not something where you feel all gooey and tingly inside. It's not something that makes you hospitable even or cordial. Now, you can feel tingly and cordial, but that's not what agape means. In John 13, before Jesus told his disciples to love one another, this is what he did. He laid aside his outer garments tied a towel around his waist and began to wash his disciples' feet. And in the beginning of that chapter, John says that he loved them to the end. In chapter 13, before he begins to wash his disciples' feet, it says that he loved them to the end. And the word for end is telos. That is such a deep and profound statement. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Telos. We've gone over telos. It means the purpose or end. So if you are God's, he loves you to the telos. God's children's telos, then, is to receive his love. And he shows it when he washes his disciples' feet. After he washes their feet, he says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you, are, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my, my disciples, if you have love for one 
another. That's agape. That's selfless sacrifice. It's not something you feel. It's something you do. Agape is action. So what was missing from the Corinthian church? A lot of things. A lot of things, right? He addresses and identifies problem after problem. But here in the pinnacle of the letter, he is providing a climactic solution. It is agape love. This is the most important thing that must exist in the body of believers. And this is what this chapter is going to talk about, the preeminence of love. And again, love isn't sentiment here. It means sacrifice. It's not emotion. It's action. It's not desire. It's discipline. I'm just going to read these three verses for you just because we're going to just be hopping in and out of them. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, I was getting into this preamble before I needed to explain what love is in the Bible. And now that we've defined that, moving on to statements uh, here, what Paul says, in regard to love, this is a fascinating journey. Because Paul gives us three examples in this passage that we've read today. And it goes from the extreme to the hyperbole. Okay? The three examples that he gives, the three verses that we've read, he goes from the extreme to the hyperbole. And this is to show that even if we were to push ourselves to a limit that is unattainable, even if we were to push ourselves to an impossible level, without love, it's useless. Many of you had questions about tongues. And the encouraging part for me was that many of you, while asking, start to figure out that those questions will eventually be answered while we go through the chapters in this letter. And I love that. I'm very thankful for that heart. So I forgot the, all the questions that were asked because I, I just read that part and I was like, oh, nice. But I think it will. The word tongues stands out in verse 1. And I think it's on purpose because Paul decides to tackle this first. Glossa, which is translated as tongues, again, means one of two things in the Greek used in the Bible. One, it could literally mean tongue, like your physical tongue. Or it can mean languages, meaning a language that people spoke and that could be understood. Now, in the charismatic movement, which I have talked extensively about, it has invaded almost every single denomination, starting from the 1950s. And it was to me, now what the charismatic movement did from the 1950s was to use this word glossa and to make it mean a third thing. Remember, there was only two things that it can mean. It could either mean your physical tongue or known language. Now, it can mean a third thing with this charismatic movement that has invaded our churches, namely a language that is not understood. And I said before, the Bible never mentions 
never mentions when he uses the term glosa, if you spoke glosa, it means it's something that people understood. But the charismatics will use this verse in particular to claim that they aren't, they aren't actually speaking gibberish, but some form of angelic tongue. By the way, it's never been interpreted, right? No one comes down and is like, there's this angelic tongue. Let's start writing it down. So this word means that. There's never that. Now this is the one and only instance, glossa. Now verse 1 of chapter 13 is the one and only instance glossa is used in reference to angels. The charismatics will go even further to claim that they speak when they speak in tongues, it's a language that only God can understand. They've gone to that level. Now when they speak in tongues or pray in tongues, it's a language that only God can understand. Why? So the devil can't hear your prayer. I have many issues with that kind of theology. I'm just going to go through a few, but I have many issues with it. One, God doesn't need you to speak in a special language for him to understand you. He understands your thoughts better than even you do. Even before you utter a word from your lips, he knows your heart. In Psalm 139.4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He doesn't need you to make up a made-up language that only he can understand. That doesn't even make any sense because you don't even understand what you're saying. What if? What if it's actually a language? And what if you are cursing the name of Jesus like they were doing in chapter 12, verse 3? I'd be very concerned if you do not understand what you are saying. That's one. Number two, what does it matter who hears your prayers? Can the devil subvert God's plan by hearing your prayers? Ah, this is the plan. I'm going to, I'm going to now, now that I know the plan, I can counter it. Can the devil subvert God's plan? And by whose power do you think God listens to your prayers? By whose power does God hear your prayers? Is it by your power? So if there is, in fact, an angelic tongue, is it so wrong for us to speak it? My answer is yes. When Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... He is saying there's one thing he can do. So he had the gift of glossa. He was able to speak in multiple languages, but he speaks in the languages of men. There's one thing he can do, and there's one thing he cannot do. This is what I'm talking about, the extreme to the hyperbole in the preamble. It's what happened at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came down, one of the signs they were given to authenticate this experience, one of them, one of the signs was that they spoke in different languages. There were many other signs like the wind and the ground shaking and things like that, right? And the people were amazed because they were hearing these Galileans speaking their mother tongue. Galileans were known to be hicks in Israel. They had this thick accent that when you spoke in a when you spoke Aramaic in a Galilean accent, like that guy's definitely from Queens or Galilee, something like that. Does that make sense? Like people just knew 
Like, they couldn't say the word hot dog without saying hot dog, right? They couldn't say it the right way, so they knew. But yet, when these Galileans started to speak, they were speaking, <clears throat> and these people were hearing it in their mother tongue. That's what was amazing. In verse 8 of Acts chapter 2, it says, And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, the visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues what? The mighty works of God. This was a sign to show that the apostles were in fact truly agents of the true and living God. God used signs and wonders to authenticate prophecy from the prophets and the apostles, and being able to speak in other languages, declaring the mighty works of God was one of them. That's the purpose of Glossa. The purpose of Glossa. Every gift has a purpose. The purpose of Glossa was to authenticate the prophecy from the apostles. It was not some form to edify yourself. So even that kind of thinking alone should start ringing some warning bells in your mind, in your heart. Edify yourself? That's not what a gift is for. It's always to edify others. <clears throat> there are experts in linguistics that have studied the languages around the world to hear what people are purporting to be languages as tongues. And they have responded by saying that these tongues that people are saying now is fundamentally, fundamentally not a language. And that's why people say, but maybe it's not a human language, maybe it's angelic tongue. Again, there is never any mention in Scripture besides this verse of angelic tongue or language. And when the angels came in the Scriptures, they always spoke in a language that people understood. They never spoke in a language that was foreign to you. That's not biblical. That's outside the Bible. So why does Paul mention angelic tongue here? He is going from the extreme to the hyperbole. Something that extreme, but something that he has done, to something that even he cannot do. Take verse 1, for instance. He can speak in the tongues of men, but he cannot speak in the tongues of angels. In verse 2, he does have prophecy or prophetic powers, but he cannot and does not understand all mysteries and all knowledge and does not have all faith as to move mountains. How can you, a finite human being, understand all mysteries? That doesn't make any sense. It's hyperbole and obviously so. Even when Jesus tells his disciples that the, the faith, the size of a mustard seed, could move mountains, what was the point of that passage? The point of the passage was not that you focus on the size of your faith. It's the object of the faith that matters, not the size of your faith. The disciples are falling into this trap. Oh, if only I had, I had enough faith. If I had this level of faith, I could do this. 
And if I had this much more faith, I could do this. But Jesus corrects them by saying, just a tiny speck of faith is all you need. Because it's not about the size of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. And Paul uses a similar hyperbolic literary mechanism here. Even if he had all faith and can remove mountains, he couldn't and he didn't. He still took ships. He was subject to the authorities. This is hyperbole. In verse 3, he did give away all he had. He did give it away, but he didn't have anything. He didn't have anything but chains. But he couldn't deliver up his body to be burned. At the time of the writing, Christians weren't being burned at the stake yet anyway. But even if you could burn yourself, the whole point is there's no love in that. It's not motivated in love. We see the Corinthians were using ecstatic speech. This is what they would call ecstatic speech. I call it gibberish. But they were using ecstatic speech, which was brought in by pagan worship. And that's exactly what the pagans were doing right outside the church. They would speak in this ecstatic speech, this mania. And in particular, uh, the rites of... Kybel, a Frisian mother of the gods. When they would speak in this ecstatic speech at the time, what they would do is they would speak in this ecstatic speech and they would go on smashing cymbals and gongs and blasting horns. That's exactly what they did. It was just all meaningless noise. And I'm so sad when I see that inside the church. What it is is pure paganism. And that's the point. When you do these things, but don't do it out of love, it's meaningless, just like the pagan worship outside your doors. When you speak gibberish, it is a loveless expression. And even if you could speak, that's the the hyperbole, even if you could speak in the best language, the highest language of all, this angelic language, even if you could go to this hyperbolic measure or standard, without love, it's meaningless. And to take this passage, passage and to rationalize spoken gibberish then would be disingenuous to the point of the text. The point of the text is to show that even if you could obtain the impossible, even if you could get to the place of ridiculousness, without love, It's meaningless. It's useless. All the power you want to obtain, it's loveless. Without love, let's hear what Calvin has to say about this passage. The main truth in this passage, this Calvin writing, is this. That as love is the only rule of our actions and the only means of regulating the right use of the gifts of God, Nothing in the absence of it is approved of by God, however magnificent it may be in the estimation of men. You see what he's saying? No matter how great you think a certain gift is, without love, it's useless. And this is where he goes on further. For where it is wanting, for where love is wanting, meaning it's not there, for where it is wanting, The beauty of all virtues is mere tinsel, is empty sound, is not worth a straw, nay more, is offensive 
and disgusting. I don't ever want us to forget the preeminence of love. It is the highest thing. Jesus showed us what agape love is by not only taking off his outer garment to wash his disciples' feet, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, those that confess Jesus Christ as Lord would follow his footsteps as he taught his disciples what true love is. So whatever you're doing, wherever you're doing it, whether you are preaching from the pulpit or you're the guy that puts the water for the preacher to drink, whether you're singing on stage or you're the person managing the slides so that people can follow along, whether you teach our children or take out the garbage after service, even if you give all your money away to the poor, if it's not done in love, it's meaningless. It's not what you do. It's how you do it. And Jesus showed us through his agape love the how. This is truly a, a treasure of truth that we've been given through the scriptures. And so praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would purify us and that now you would empower us to the end. May we be people that show the world that we are your disciples by the way we love one another, O oh God. Not by lifting ourselves up, but by sacrificing ourselves to lift up the other. Let's take this time to pray. And let's pray that by the conviction that the Word and the Spirit gives us, that we will be driven and um, encouraged to action to serve the church as He has called us to serve, thereby glorifying Him and following Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Let's pray.